0: Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me The Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast.
1: Show Me The Meaning!
0: My name is Jared, I'm joined here with the rest of the Show Me The Meaning dudes. we got Ryan. Sup! And Austin. Hey. And we also got a special guest today from Funhouse, as well as Filmhouse, which is their movie podcast. We've got Adam Kovic.
2: Hi, I'm special. (laughs) Welcome, Adam. Welcome. Thank you for having me, guys.
0: Yeah, great to have you. Uh, Actually, yesterday... I was on the Filmhouse podcast and we talked about the sequel to the movie we're about to talk to today. We talked about S. Darko, which was uh, a lot of fun. So I highly recommend after you listen to this, you uh, check out Adam's podcast Filmhouse and see what we have to say about the sequel.
2: Only nice things.
0: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But today we're talking about the 2001 film written and directed by Richard Kelly, Donnie Darko, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Jenna Malone. So as always, we're going to go around and get some first impressions. Tell me about the first time you watched this movie and how you felt about it back then and what it's like revisiting it. Let's start with Ryan.
3: Um, Well, first time was back in high school or uh, whenever it came out. And it was really one of the I saw it the perfect time in my life because it was a total like it's a total film geek, film buff movie. I feel like especially when you, you know, for teenagers and people in college because it likes it feels like it's saying a lot, and it is saying a lot, you know, but it also is uh, uh, also has a lot of really cool soundtrack and uh, really awesome performances by Jake Gyllenhaal, who wasn't really – who was kind of discovered fr- from this movie. So, yeah, I mean, first time I saw it, like, I was blown away, and I was still blown away. I'm still – it's still an amazing movie to revisit, I feel like, for lots of different reasons. It's a super cinematic, just – Many layers to to peel back on this movie. So so I loved it.
0: So you loved this movie and still love
3: it.
2: Yeah. Cool. Adam, what about you? Uh, Yeah, kind of similar. I was an angsty teenager when this movie came out. I was in high school. I'm 33 now. So it was probably the first technically independent movie I saw uh, where I had to, uh, as an L.A. kid, I had to drive down to Hollywood, the one theater that was showing it, watched it with a friend. Didn't know what I saw, but I knew that I liked it. Yeah. Uh, And... Much like other movies, I think as I got older, I thought, well, maybe it's not as good as I thought. But uh, I'm actually really glad it came on the podcast because I rewatched it last night. Walking, away going, I like this movie. It's yeah. still good. I think the, it's an interesting film that the has so much of a legacy now. Yeah, uh, which I think is going to make for an interesting podcast discussion. I'm actually really excited to talk about the movie and all that's like you're saying the different layers. And it's, um, I, I guess, it's a movie that succeeded. Actually, failed, but it succeeded despite everyone that got in the way and it's it, um i think it's just a fascinating piece of cinema history yeah uh, that's definitely worth uh discussing and uh, it's what 20 years later and we're still kind of interested still in this talking film? about
0: it there's still a cult of donnie darko
2: yeah very a much smaller cut of that is s darko fans but <laughs> we're, we're here loud and proud yeah
1: all right austin what about you so similar with Gattaca, I hadn't actually ever seen Donnie Darko in oh, cool, its entirety, but I do have a profound memory when I when, when like so this came out in what 01? 02? 01. Oh, mm. Right? So it must like have been, a week
3: after 9/11.
1: That's right. Yeah, cuz I remember the bit about the plane engine and stuff like that caused controversy and shit. But I do have a really profound memory and let's say it must have been 2002 where I walked into I, I, my friend's house and couple of my homies were all sitting on the sofa watching this film and they were like locked in and they weren't like film guys like these were we were in a band together so we were music guys we weren't really film guys and they were like locked into this and after they watched it they had this look on their face of awe and they said dude you have to see donnie darko and so in the back of my mind i always whenever people talk about donnie darko my my immediate sort of recollection is that experience and my teenage friends saying bro you gotta see donnie darko so this was the first (laughs) time seeing it and now i wish i could say it to some other teenagers and say dude you gotta see donnie darko it's pretty fucking awesome pretty awesome
0: okay very cool so the first time I saw this movie was actually in Film Camp in like 2003 I was a freshman film in Film Camp Film Camp what the in fuck Idlewild. Is that? it's a film camp in Idlewild, California it was like a 2 week you know filmmakers camp for young budding filmmakers or people who <laughs> want to be filmmakers and we, we were shown this movie and I remember really liking it, but I also remember that there is something about this movie that whether it's the imagery or the tone, it really captures teenagers. And I remember I just have fond memories of like a bunch of these like high school freshmen, you know, whenever they hear Frank the rabbit say, like, why are you wearing that stupid man suit? People are like, oh, my God, did you just hear what he said? He asked, why are you wearing that stupid man suit? And like everyone, you know, thinks that's the most amazing, profound thing. But and so, you know, it affected me as a kid. I was really captured by it. Interestingly, so let me back up and say that we've gotten a lot of requests to cover this movie uh, in Wisecrack, either doing an Earthling Cinema episode or some sort of philosophy of episode. And I've always resisted because I was like, I don't really think there's much there other than, you know, it's. It's kind of like I often divide between a complicated movie and a complex movie. A complicated movie would be a movie like Inception. It's like it's really just hard to follow the plot. And I think similarly with Donnie Darko, with the time travel conundrums, you know, there is quote unquote analysis in it in that it's just difficult to understand what happened. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's like subtext. Not to say that there isn't. I actually had a pretty rewarding experience watching it this time. However, it's just been I've always been asking myself, what do people want to hear? How might we cover this? And I'll just say one last thing is that. The thing I remember this movie for is obviously Frank the Rabbit and the music and the kind of sci-fi wormhole time travel stuff. But this time watching, I was much more kind of captured and fascinated by just the the world of this upper middle class neighborhood and kind of the decadence and the the. Feelings of inadequacy and all the struggles of like, you know, growing up in the late 80s. I think that especially watching S. Darko with Adam, I I realized that, you know, they really did capture a kind of state of teen being and, you know, a time better than certainly better than S. Darko. But I think That would be my best guess as to why this movie resonates so much. I think that the setting, the background of the time travel stuff is really some of the things that are the most exceptional elements and the ones that speak most to people. But before uh, we dive more into that, I want to just give everyone a quick recap.
3: Looking forward to this.
0: (laughs) It actually wasn't that hard. So, troubled high schooler Donnie Darko has been sleepwalking lately. On one such occasion, a man in a rabbit suit costume named Frank tells him that the world will end in 28 days. That. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, we have a we have a we have a soundboard now and I made I made the mistake of giving it to Ryan. <laughs> so, that night, a plane engine falls on the house, but mysteriously there's no plane that goes with it. So, influenced by Frank, Donnie then vandalizes the school plumbing while sleepwalking and later musters up the courage to ask out Gretchen, the new girl. During another delirious state, Donnie asks Frank why he made him do it, and Frank responds with, "What do you know about time travel?" Donnie inquires about time travel to his teacher, who gives him a book called The Philosophy of Time Travel, written by Roberta Sparrow, a nun turned teacher turned recluse. The book describes with eerie precision the visions that Donnie's been having, including warped cylinders of light emerging from his and other people's chests, leading them through time. Frank comes to Donnie during a movie and reveals his face. There's a bullet wound through his eye. Frank then shows Donnie a portal and tells him to burn down the house of a local self-help guru scam artist, revealing his links to child pornography rings. On the night of the world's supposed end, Donnie throws a Halloween party while his family travels to the youngest daughter's national dance competition. Donnie follows one of his hallucinations to Roberto Sparrow's house, where he and Gretchen are ambushed by two school bullies, causing Gretchen to get run over by a passing car. The driver gets out, and it's none other than Frank in his bunny costume, but not the one that Donnie's been hallucinating. Donnie takes a gun and shoots him in the face. The plane Donnie's family is on crashes in midair, and the engine goes through a wormhole, traveling back in time and falling on Donnie's house. Donnie goes through the wormhole, too, and decides not to leave his room on the night of the crash, letting the engine kill him, erasing the course of events that would lead to Gretchen's death. End of movie. I guess my first question I wanted to open it up to, so I was watching this last night, my roommate came in and said that she has fond memories of this movie because, similar to what everyone else is saying, she said, this is the first movie that really compelled me to take a closer look at a movie and analyze it, which I find interesting but yeah, more to what we were talking about earlier, I'm just curious, why do you think this movie has resonated with a whole generation? Why I remember in 2006, the movie came out in 2001, I remember in 2006, on the cover of Entertainment Weekly, it was a five-year-old movie, it was Jake Gyllenhaal as Donnie Darko, and it said, The Cult of Donnie Darko. Five years later, it had become a
2: DVD sensation. And I'm curious, why do you guys think that is? I, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. PlayStation 2.
0: Oh well! Everyone that...
2: had a DVD player around this time, and mm-hmm. this was this was when this is sort of the the beginning of the Netflix distribution, where now all of a sudden we have access to movies that we didn't before. Us telling the story of when I was younger, there was only one theater, and this is living in LA, where you're supposed to be the you know the land of everything, mm-hmm. and I saw had to drive 45 minutes out of my way to find a theater that was playing Donnie Darko. The rest of the world could not find this movie, and this is one of those early. Word of mouth DVD things. Boondock Saints was that. Mm. Uh, Donny Darko. Garden
3: played. State, I'd put in that category. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah, weird,
2: yeah. it was a weird time. And it's, uh, I, I think we're, uh, most of us are around that same age where that was the thing we experienced where he we said, well, I have this thing that can play GTA 3, but I'll, I'll borrow my friend's copy of Donnie Darko and watch it. And then you, and you as an impressionable teenager, go, Whoa, I'm smart now.
1: Adam, what compelled you to drive forty-five minutes to see this? Had you heard, like, buzz, or, or, like, yeah, or, like, yeah, what was it? I'm probably the
0: only one here who's seen it in the theater. I didn't even know this movie existed when it was still in theaters.
1: I, I
2: lucked out. Um, My mom is a police officer, and she worked in West Hollywood. And a friend of mine just randomly sent me a trailer and said, "Dude, this movie looks so scary." And it was Mm. super low res AOL homepage. (laughs) <laughs> tiny little quick time video and we watched the trailer and he's like dude i'm so scared And i was like I, we thought it was a horror movie mm-hmm. so we found this one theater i was playing it my mom was working that night she took us in her police car to go see donnie darko dropped Sweet. us off and after we left we're like it wasn't really a horror movie but i think i liked it and that's that's when i thought i was like well that's over uh always been into movies as a kid so that was just it was kind of it just made sense for me that mm-hmm. I could, I had this access to go um, to find this film, and then, yeah, I, I guess years later, people were like, "Dude, have you seen this movie?" I'm like, yeah, years ago. Is it cool again? And that was. Yeah. Uh, I was glad. It, I was glad I got a chance.
3: So. Your, your comment, you know, that that it made you feel smart. Uh, like, I do feel that that there's a lot of truth. That this is like very much like a puzzle movie where you watch it and you're kind of trying to figure out what's going on, but at the same time, you're, you know, it's got these cool slow mo uh, uh, music video esque scenes that. Can keep anyone entertained, and but yeah, at the end, this movie has a very unusual backstory too. Because not only with the whole release and stuff, but the rumor is is that. You know, Richard Kelly's a super indulgent filmmaker. You can see that in all of his other movies, like Southland Tales, or Oof, man. All, yeah, I mean, shit, watch world, that world movie, World Builder, I <laughs> yeah. guess you would say. And yeah. so, th- so what I heard is that this movie, basically, when it came out, its first cut was incomprehensible, like Southland Tales, and that basically, mm. this, the you know, he didn't have any clout because this was his, one of his first independent movies. So the producers basically gave it to another editor, and the editor. Did fucking God's work with what he had and made it into the classic movie we see because he took mm-hmm. out all the stuff that explains all the shit, you know, right. and and made it into a very, like, like it, a mystery, almost, of what all that is, you know, kind of like what Spielberg did with Jaws or whatever, you know. H- has like, anyone here actually seen the director's cut? Yeah, we, yeah. We, we need to talk about that at some point, because the director's cut sucks in my opinion. Yeah,
0: like... I, I agree. I, I actually, I have seen the director's cut, and in fact when I was doing the research to do a Wisecrack video on it, I watched the director's cut because the hardcore Donnie Darko fans consider the director's cut to be the definitive version, and it explains all the lore and stuff
3: like that. Boo. Theatrical all the way.
0: Yeah, but before we, before we move on to that, I want to hear why Austin thinks perhaps this movie has resonated so much with a generation.
1: It's interesting, and I don't want to I want to say this with a little bit of levity, so if it's not in my tone of voice, please just project it in there through your own perspectives. Um, I think this film is very pseudo-intellectual, and what I mean by that is that I think this is the kind of film that is like the film that would really resonate with teenagers more so than like 40-year-olds who are seeing this movie because it does have like the twists and the turns and it has this weird plot structure but then at the same time it's also got these themes of time travel determinism and things like that 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 i think are masked in this this garb of intellectualism but i don't really think they're that profound and i think maybe jared that's what you were hinting at when you were first talking about the film that it that it's kind of all there at a superficial level. And again, I know we use these words like superficial and pseudo-intellectual, and they oftentimes are like epithets. And I don't mean them that way. I mean it I mean it more in like the technical sense of, of what the words actually mean. And, right. and it's so, not that the film – yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I was going to say I would agree. However, I do think that obviously the film did something well. I mean even just inspiring people who had never thought – That, oh, you should put thought into a movie or you can critically engage with a movie, even if this is a, quote, pseudo-intellectual film, even if there really isn't the real robust subtext underneath what's happening. I still think that it's worth appreciating and studying
1: how is it that this film propelled people to thought. A hundred percent. And I think that's why it would resonate with teenagers so much, because teenagers... They're not going to to vibe as much on the on par, you know. Obviously, some are the the sort of ones that are already reading like fucking Plato when they're fifteen years old and shit. They're wackos, but um, good for you. Keep going. Be wacko. But I feel like this film hits like that sweet spot for it's like just above the intellectual grasp of a teenager, but it's not so far above that it's like Inception, where it's like, okay, what the fuck is happening? Or Memento, which I think that there is something much more. Um, meaty and teethy going on in some of Nolan's films. And then, of course, there are other films that I think are even far more incomprehensible than than even what Nolan is uh, exploring, you know? A film like *Pi*, for example. So so I think that it kind of hits that sweet spot between, like, like the hardcore intellectual type of filmmaking that you often get with avant-garde cinema, like uh, a filmmaker that I work with that I'm actually making a movie with right now. I got him Isaiah Medina. Isaiah Medina, who made a film called 8888, that is this, like, crazy mathematical... Um, jump-cutty montage experiment on uh, youth poverty in Winnipeg, where he grew up. That's, like, crazy intellectual. And then there's, like, you know, like, I don't know, Boss Baby. And then there is, like, Donnie Darko, you know, that, that kind of... It kind of tethers the balance between the two.
3: It also has that what-the-fuck factor that kids are into, you know? True. There, like, so many scenes where you're just like, what? What's going yeah, on, but I, dude? Yeah, uh, but I feel like... A
0: lot of other movies have attempted to either... do the same thing that Donnie Darko has done Her, or they've definitely tried to inspire the same kind of wonder, the same kind of confusion, the same kind of imagery that compels people to think. But I think there's something about, I don't think it's just as simple as this is the first movie to do it. I think there's something about this movie more so than other movies that really reaches teenagers and makes them think, oh, there's something here.
3: I don't think it's the first one to do it, but I think it's one. it, it, was, the, it was the one doing it that kind of defined that generation of movies that kind of was very much about it's time and it and it kind of looked at kids in a i mean it's an edgy teen movie there's you know like a lot of teen movies play it safe and it's kind of it's almost talking down to them or it's just not how teens are but it, this it, is uh, it reminded me a lot of
2: catcher in the rye mm. if you ever mm. read that um where when i was a teenager that was my bible I'm like wow mm. holden speaking to me and then holden, as, an, yeah, yeah. as holden and then as an adult I'm like Holden sucks. Yeah, um, yeah. this kid's yeah. a shithead. And you're like Donnie. Same uh, very, way. Uh, you you were uh, made that point pop in my head, Austin, when you were talking about how it resonated with teenagers versus forty year olds. When I was a kid, Donnie was the cool kid. You, mm. you ever get into an argument with someone, and then five days later, you go, "This is what I would have said." That's Donnie in almost every scene. Mm. I swear to God, that's Richard Kelly projecting himself yeah. back into high school, saying. Man, if I had this college education when I was 16, this is what I would have said to my teachers. Mm. And so as a teenager, me myself watching this thinking, oh, my God, he's so smart, so, so cool. That's the magic of filmmaking is that that's a scene that would never happen in real life and no child talks like that. Uh, as I got older, I've I noticed that. But I now, um, similar of what you're saying, Jared, I feel like now I appreciate the film more from a filmmaking perspective from, as opposed to a a story or a character-driven piece. I think the characters are actually kind of flat Yeah. in the movie. Um, Donnie is basically Richard Kelly, and then everyone else just sort of serves Donnie. Right. Uh, which, as a, when I was young, I thought, oh, I'm the center of the universe. I am like Donnie. And now, uh, reading about the movie and all this stuff, I, have, I actually just have more of an appreciation that this thing got made. I actually was, the con- the thought I had on the way over here was, this to me is like a modern Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um I'd like the original 1977 one where this movie it has a grand vision and it came together despite the director being insane.
1: Yeah, I was <laughs> well, wondering how the g- fuck did this movie get made? There was Drew, Bar- Drew, Drew, Drew Barrymore, Drew Barrymore, okay? yeah. <laughs> the, the <Wow>. One person. <laughs> well, if I can real quick one more thing that I I didn't I didn't articulate, but I think maybe this is this is my unconscious sneaking suspicion reading between the lines as to why this film resonates or resonated and then also where I actually think the level of analysis is most interesting in this film. And I think that the film is really dealing with trauma and anxiety in a post Reagan world which is where America was on top, everything was perfect and like Jared pointed out, it's in this middle, upper middle class neighborhood where everything takes place. And I grew up in a neighborhood just like that, I'm from Southern Orange County, right? So I grew up in Yuppieville, this could have been my neighborhood. He clearly goes to a private school because they're all in uniforms. Um, I lived right down the street from Santa Margarita Catholic High School, which is, you know, a very sort of... And, like, they play with, like, modern day and stuff like that. So it's a it's a very sort of upper-middle-class... Fuck, maybe upper-class. It's almost like a West Coast boarding school uh, at that level of elite. So I feel like something else that's really interesting is that this film really deals with the sort of tensions and anxieties and traumas that teenagers deal with in the United States when they're dealing with affluenza, right? So yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that... Uh, minority um, uh, individuals on the lower socioeconomic status that they would resonate uh, with this film as much as someone who is from a middle class or upper middle class background would and I think it's because it deals with those traumas of you've got everything but you're still fucking miserable or here's the impending doom you have this sense of anxiety that is coming and here's how you deal with that and that's really what this film explores that I think now is the most interesting part rather than the time travel stuff and the plot twisty stuff and and those things. So maybe that's an element too.
0: Yeah, so this is... this. What Austin is saying is essentially my theory as to why this movie resonates so much. So I think that this movie really more than anything it so perfectly captures this upper middle class kind of suburban neoconservatism and it do, it kind of critiques this it shows the hypocrisy the discontent the inhibited desires and the artificial nature of like the upper middle class suburbs so well i mean this had to have been richard kelly's life i don't actually know this do you guys know for a fact i mean it had to be it had he, to be he gets it so right and 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 i didn't grow up in a level of, in a community that was that affluent, but I mean, you know, you can tell in a movie when somebody, when a filmmaker knows and, you know, and you knows the world that they're portraying. And I think that there's an element of escapism from this world that the time travel and the Frank thing gives the audience. So I think that a lot of teenagers can see the same kind of affluenza. They can see the same kind of excess yet the same kind of discontent. They can see that in their own lives. And then, uh, they have, also, there is this kind of, I think, to Adam's point about being very, uh, I don't know if narcissistic is the right word, but there is this sense that, oh, my God, you know, I'm living in this community full of people that don't understand me. There, there is definitely an element of nobody gets me in this movie. Yeah. Like Donnie is somebody who uh, has inhibited desires. He's always super horny. He sees things that no one else sees. Uh, his girlfriend tells him that he's weird. He says weird things in school. There, it's revealed that he accidentally or per- perhaps purposely burned a house down a long time ago. He's uh, ha- he's on antidepressants. Uh, his parents are kind of awkwardly fumbling with this uh, with uh, you know the new psychopharmacology industry. They don't know how to help their son. These are all things that kids with affluenza go through, and I feel like the time travel element of it and the frank stuff is this very beautiful very evocative form of escape that if you feel like that you know even your life of excess and privilege is stifling which i think a lot of these kids do this movie i think evokes a sense of escaping that quote unquote gilded prison
1: yeah exactly because that's what he does right i mean he's already experiencing some sort of um, symptom to this traumatic experience that that's manifesting in in his anxiety, right? So that's why he's sleepwalking and he's already in therapy and he's already prescribed medication. Um, so Frank Cumming isn't really the catalyst for time travel. It, it sort of is. It's it's approximate cause, but I don't think it's really the ultimate cause. The ultimate cause is the the experience of trauma, because he's already in a in, in a state of anxiety. But rather what he does then is he projects this ghost um, that then obviously you end up finding is this person later and is it a real person? Is it a fabrication? Did he somehow see down the wormhole and and have a, a god's eye view so to speak on what would happen on this alternate timeline? Perhaps that's it. Maybe but I, I actually think that the, the more intriguing way to, to view this is that this is a sort of um, hallucinatory projection that is that – is, Coming from a place of truth, so, um, you know, uh, psychoanalysts uh, Zizek and Lacan would refer to this as the hysteric as opposed to the obsessive. The hysteric is the one who uses lies, who um, is running around and, and is, you know, locking the doors because they're afraid that, I don't know, the squirrels are going to come in and attack them that are running around on the roof or something like that. That's not going to happen, but what what what's being masked is truth. There is a truth of an anxiety, some sort of lack that is um, that is being felt from within. And so then it manifests itself in different ways. And how does it manifest itself? Well, he imagines a six-foot Harvey, you know, a mean, psychopathic Harvey. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting way that you could analyze this film as well.
3: So you think the whole thing was basically one big dream and I mean, it, didn't I think ha- it, could- it didn't physically happen?
1: I think you could look at it from either perspective, and I wouldn't quibble with either argument. I just think the more interesting argument is to sort of see it as a hallucinatory projection.
0: So, this is where I think it's appropriate to bring up the original cut versus the director's cut. So, the key differences between them is that in the director's cut, they added a scene in which Donnie's therapist tells him that his medications are placebos, and when she does that, It kills any ambiguity of whether the hallucinations are happening because he's having a negative reaction to the medicine or if it's some sort of product of mental illness. And then the other huge one, which totally kills the movie, which is why I think the director's cut is an inferior film, is because the director's cut includes visual excerpts from Roberta Sparrow's book, The Philosophy of Time Travel, and these... Visual excerpts, like literally, it's like chapter one of Donnie Darko, and then there's like text on the screen that holds your hand through the t- through the uh, logic of time travel. It gives you terms like. What is the tangent universe? What is the primary universe? What is the artifact? What is the living receiver? This kills that ambiguity that Austin's talking about. And I, I agree with Austin in that it's definitely more tempting and much more rewarding to read the film as about teen alienation and escapist fam- uh, fantasy and mental illness. But the director's cut is just very overtly a movie about time travel. Um Like, there's a part in the movie, in the theatrical version, that they kind of sweep under the rug that does add a level of ambiguity to this whole thing. So when when he vandalizes the school the first time, when he kills the plumbing, we see the axe that he uses buried in the head of a bronze statue and the cops say like how is that even possible that's solid bronze so Mm -hmm. in the director's cut they explain that they randomly say that in in text on screen they say that oh well sometimes the living receiver is given superpowers. Richard Kelly felt that in the director's cut, he needed to explain that to give it credibility. But I think that, that when you don't explain that detail, it gives it a level of ambiguity because now we can point to that and say, no, wait a second. How did he even get up there? How could he have the strength to do that? Maybe this is some sort of fantasy.
1: Yeah, I read an article and it was talking all about like the living receiver and what is it, the monumental dead or the walking dead or whatever the fuck, like all these the, all the different elements, right, that that take place in the director's cut. I just think that actually that's a worse film, um, even Absolutely. though I haven't seen that cut. I think yeah. that, that don't bother that thematically. I, I'm not. I think that actually takes away from something that could be such a, a profound examination of uh, teen angst, like Adam said earlier. You know. Um, and it sets it up so well in in the theatrical version where you've got like Dukakis versus Bush in 88, right? And it's like, we're out of Reagan's America, we're prosperous, everything is going good. And you've got Maggie Gyllenhaal, who's kind of like the bleeding heart liberal, who's going to go to Harvard and she's going to vote for Dukakis. And they're discussing about whether or not there's enough funding in the government to pay for all the things that Dukakis is saying. So there's this real anxiety about the future. And Donnie doesn't have any way to deal with this. Everybody else in the town seems to have a way to deal with this you know you've got the parents that have their way you've got the the mother who's obsessed with the dance troupe that's got her way you've got Swayze who's got his way of with his pop psychology shit so they're Sparkle the obsessives motion. yeah it, I mean it, it, and, and to be honest I mean there's actually a lot of stuff in today's culture that I think really fits with this but they're the obsessives they're the ones that they're rejecting the trauma of the historical moment they're refusing it they're, they're looking at the future and they're not as as succumbing uh, they're they're not as overcoming uh, or overcome i should say if you will by the anxiety but donnie is and i think that's a much more interesting film than just like a kind of like weird time travel film i mean i don't know i haven't seen the director's cut so i can't shit on it too much but it just seems to not have well this this
2: probably sounds like a conversation that the editor had with richard kelly (laughs) or someone said hey man you got a lot of good ideas but I really like these things because all the time travel stuff you're talking about makes no sense to me. And that's why I keep – I made the comparison to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I think there are certain like – special di- editions. Well, yeah, exactly. I think there are directors who are visionaries. And I, I don't mean that in like a you know circle jerk sort of way. But in a – I think they see things. I think there is something in their mind that is unlocked that they have a very hard time articulating. And they try to put it down in paper and they show it to people. And they get very frustrated that people do not see what they see. And so it takes a very calm collective group of people to go, let's bring that back, bring it back to earth and try to make this uh, palatable for humans because right. yeah, <laughs> uh, cuz like you look when you when you know when they're you know discussing the history of uh, kyber crystals, people probably there's a group of people who really like this stuff but maybe people want to see the human the, the hero's journey when you're talking right. about Star Wars and then mm. with Donnie Darko Maybe you want to see the family you want to see you can have this really cool backdrop, which is alternate reality and time travel. That's cool stuff. But ultimately, right now, where our minds have evolved, we probably need that human story. And that's mm. what the editor's job is to do, typically.
0: And then if you look mm. at his next movie, Southland Tales, you can see what happens when he's surrounded by yes men mm-hmm. who just do exactly what he wants them to do in that movie. I think maybe
3: pound for pound the worst movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs> it is just, you know, I, I really think th- to your point, like I, I believe that if, that Richard Kelly doesn't know what makes his. Awesome movie so awesome, you know, because yeah, he he had a chance to what refix it and he put it he made it worse. And then every other movie that has that, that he's had free final cut on has sucked, you know, for the very reasons we're talking about. They have very big ideas, but it's just kind of there's so much indulgent in, in a bad way. And usually and I love indulgent filmmakers, you know, but like this guy is a strange person,
1: you know, if you, you look at his filmography. So. Well, you can see some of the indulgence, right? Like the cutaway shots to the waves and the close-ups of the eyes that um, you know they kind of have like a Malik-y sort of montagey feel to them, and so you can see that that it's there. But I think it's done really tastefully in, in the theatrical version because, like you said, Ryan, yeah, I, I, I don't I, think that, I like it's that him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He I, had somebody
0: he, just reeling him in, saying, "You know, chill, man, chill."
2: Uh, I, I brought up this um on our on the uh the film House podcast, but there's a uh article, I believe it's IndieWire. I'll I'll send you the link. It's really good. It's from the perspective of the DP who worked with um, Richard Kelly, who was fifty-three at the time. And he he sounds like the I this is like the grandfather I wish I had, where he talks about working with a green director who's fresh out of film school. First thing he told him was, You and I are the same age. I don't care how young you are, you shouldn't care how old I am we're going to work together and i'm going to respect everything you're doing and it was some but he would say no in the best way. He would never actually say no. Richard Kelly would go, "I want this cra- I have this crazy idea, I want to do this." The DP knew that was impossible, but he still walked him through the steps that it would take to do that and he would hope that the director would reach the correct conclusion which was, "Yes, that shot's impossible. Let's do something more realistic like all those ramping shots, the time ramps. Mm. That was not done digitally. That's seven people on a camera." Spooling up the film faster and slower to speed up, slow down.
0: Wow, oh, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, so he, like I said, he was surrounded by some very talented people. Wow. Without those those folks, I feel like this. There, you can kind of see it where there's the guy on set going like, I don't know what this movie's about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. A lucky son of a bitch. There are
2: some very smart and talented people who could visualize this man's vision and make something that we can comprehend.
0: Right. You know, one of my favorite performances in this movie, uh, after watching it last night, is uh, Mary McDonnell, who plays his mom. Yeah, Dude, I felt I'm so like
1: glad she, you said that. Yeah,
0: yeah, I felt like she, like it, it's a very muted performance, but I feel like just looking at her face, even just her makeup, you can see how she's just so desperately trying to deal with this uh, feeling of sadness, and she's. But you can see the yeah like she's always just got this stone face she's trying to keep it together she's trying to be a good mom she kind of perhaps is more in clued into the hypocrisy of this kind of ethically myopic, myopic traditional value community and but she keeps it in i think that one of the last shots of the movie is her smoking a cigarette and you can see yeah. like that the discontent comes out and uh i think yeah her performance although she doesn't say much is is great it kind of reminds me of
1: Tony Collette in The Sixth Sense, um, quiet, subtle. But I-, I think that that this performance, McDonald's performance, is uh, is even more impactful. That last bit, man, um, where she's smoking the cigarette after her son has just been killed, the rest of the family are a wreck. Um, is it Gretchen um Jenna Malone's character yeah. she comes by on the bike and and you've got that little boy and you've got that exchange of like the waving of hands and there's this like weird and this is where the time travel element does seem to maybe have some sort of a reality to it and it's not just a hallucination cuz maybe there's a point at which there's like a trace where Gretchen and the mother are kind of like there's some sort of connection there like maybe maybe Gretchen is sort of almost like a deja vu like there's a familiarity here when the little boy says do you know did you know him and she says no but but there's still a the hold on that look maybe implies that there is something more there i don't know but that scene is really powerful and and i think it's made because of mcdonald's performance
0: yeah i i feel like when she's out there smoking that cigarette she's and i'm completely projecting here but i feel like she's doubting her decision to you know, uh, live in the suburbs, to uh, try to adhere to this uh, traditional value, this conservative suburban lifestyle because she knows or at least I'm sure she did it because it would allow her kids to get into Harvard and stuff like that. Yet look at her son. Her son is not nearly as successful as their daughter. He's gone through a lot of issues and now he's ultimately dead. Um, I think there's all, I, I and, love and, that. And, yeah, absolutely.
3: Well, I'm sorry.
0: No, I was this I, I this is going to this is tangential. So if you want to continue talking about the mother, but I was going to say I think that a great I think one of the most powerful characters in the movie that isn't talked about a lot is Drew Barrymore's character and I think that she's mm. a really great counterpoint to the suburban community. She did mm. do
2: that weird thing where she goes you can sit next to the boy you find the cutest. Oh, yeah. I am like, whoa, I, that never happened in my high school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that was,
0: that's, a, that's a strong
1: move. <laughs> yeah, way to make all the other guys feel like shit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, you're I, definitely putting the new girl on the spot. No. It, it was that moment where I kind of wondered too, is this like an unreliable narrator sort of thing that we've got going mm. on? That at this point the hallucinations have started, so maybe there's some ambiguity that's, that's there because this is from Donnie's perspective. Um, in this alternate vision that he's hallucinating that she would choose him as being the cute boy even though he's not like you know it's some hot shot at the school I mean I don't know but I do think it's interesting that she gets fired because it's almost like in her own way she was responding to the the anxiety that the students are feeling or that maybe Donnie is is feeling by trying to reach her students in a different way from what the status quo prescribes right so she has this book that is a little bit edgy and then that some of the parents, the one the one like typical PTA mom freaks out about, right? Um right. because it's got these these themes in it that are just too I don't know, they're untraditional themes or something along those lines, right? They're dangerous themes. And, right. and so and, and, Drew Barrymore's kind of she's almost like a fringe figure, just like also the the overweight uh exchange student is kind of also a fringe figure. So there's there are these people that don't quite fit into the status quo. Um, And I think exploring them in that world is also kind of nice. Yeah.
0: I I think that those characters – so Mrs. Farmer is the PTA woman that you're talking about, and she's also an amazing performance. I think that these things – I think that the the contrast between Mrs. Farmer and Drew Barrymore's character really speaks to this very stifling nature of the upper-class suburbs. We see in – was it Patrick Swayze, his like, you know, fear and love seminar. They want to make everything black and white. You know, everything can be boiled down to fear and love. Right. Just like everything, I guess, is as and, and, you know, Mrs. Or I'm sorry, Drew Barrymore's characters introducing this perhaps subversive piece of literature. Graham Greene's. uh, What is it? The Destroyers or something like that. And we and, and more to the point of the movie creating this atmosphere creating this environment of very stifling strict traditional values that ultimately and this is another thing that i find interesting about the movie is that they reveal the hypocrisy of it so uh, i think one of and by the way i think that the comedy works in this movie pretty darn well and that's another reason why i think it's aged
2: yeah i was wondering is richard kelly that's as for a 24 year old to have that sort of dark sense of humor, I thought was very mature. He, he's probably a very mature person. Yeah. He's writing for Donnie. But the the line from Mrs. Farmer of like, I really doubt your commitment to sparkle, sparkle motion. motion. <laughs> and like that line kills. It's so
0: good. <laughs> yeah. There's it a is lot great. of just good, and I, dark, and, and,
2: and, ironic moments.
0: Yes. And I love in that scene you're talking about, she's wearing a shirt that says God is awesome <laughs> while she defends the reputation of someone associated with a child pornography
1: ring. Yeah, and then it's interesting how she re- responds when, m- m- I can't remember, what's the, m- Mrs. Darko even says that, oh yeah, he got caught up in kitty porn, which is a euphemism, but even that euphemism is too much for the delicate ears of this other woman to even handle, and she like freaks out, like, oh, don't even say that word, and and I and I said this word earlier, I used it, I said that they're, the town are set up as the obsessives, and um, in, in distinction to the hysteric, which is Donnie, right? He's living this lie, but the it's masking the truth of the anxiety. The obsessives do the inverse of that. They they live the lie. They're the ones that, like you talked about, Swayze, it's all boiled down to a simple thing that we can grasp. It's either fear or love. Which one are you going to choose? Choose love. and And that's what a lot of times the obsessive will do, is the obsessive will simply try to um, condense everything down to something that's really palatable so that they don't ever have to deal with the truth of the anxiety. So the life that they live is actually ultimately a bigger lie than even what the hysteric is living. So they're masking the truth um, through living the lie, whereas uh, but, but they think that the, the lie that they're living is the truth. Does that make sense? So they're unaware that the lie that they're living is a lie and they actually think that it is the truth. And that's what I think you get with this town.
0: Yeah. Do you think we can connect that to Donnie's parents struggling with how do we deal with our son who has mental problems? There were no mental problems when I was growing up. Now we have this psychiatrist. What's a psychiatrist? I'm paying someone $200 an hour. I love the scene where the dad awkwardly, there's having a conversation in the car about, they're not able to talk about not knowing where the engine came from, and that's silly. <laughs> How can they not know about what they talk about? And then the dad very awkwardly says, uh, but you can tell your doctor uh, what's her name. Yeah, you you tell her whatever you want, because I don't right. know what's wrong. And he doesn't say mm-hmm. this, but he's basically like, I don't know what's wrong with you, kid, but uh, I want to make sure that I'm allowing the expert to fix the problem. And I feel like that's another reason why this film reaches teenagers, because these teenagers – you know, especially during the 2000s, I don't know so much about the 80s because I was only just born, but I feel like they were dealing with these very new problems that their parents were unequipped to to deal with, or at least it was a new frontier of mental illness, all that, you know, the DSM had come out, all these things, right. you know, we had ADD and all that stuff. and. Their answer was to go back to traditional values, to the nostalgia of what we did back in my day. You know, my dad always would say shit like, you know, oh, just, you know, chin up, kid, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And so you see that this community is taking these very complex teenage problems and just saying it's either fear or love. That's it. Right. The One of my favorite. Parts of this movie that's talking more about kind of revealing the hypocrisy under the traditional value neoconservative suburb is when Donnie is burning down uh, Mr. Cunningham's house and he uncovers the kitty porn dungeon or whatever. It's mm-hmm. intercut with Donnie's youngest sister performing her whole sparkle motion dance. So I like it how not only does Donnie reveal that the guru behind controlling fear is a pervert, but also that. The moral blindness also extends to the community who are sexualizing these young women under the guise of achievement. And uh,
2: well, you see that in Drew Barrymore's character, where before Sparkle Motion goes on, there is a, a young girl who's overweight. She's the only minority in the town, I believe, who they even throw out ethnic slurs to. Which Right. Once, I always wonder, Mike, is that the director? Thinks that's funny or that's something that actually happened? Because it is a very, you know, it's a white town. Yeah. And she does a very, as an adult, I'm watching this going, wow, that dance she's doing is very lovely. But as a kid, I probably would have been like, aha, look at fat girl trying to dance because I was yeah. a dumbass kid. Yeah. Right. And you see that in Drew Barrymore's face of like, wow, what a beautiful thing. And then everyone cheers for Sparkle Motion. The easy thing, the sexy little girls doing a dance, which is sick sickening yeah yeah. when you think of it in your own head of just like Mm. how kind of gross this whole thing is and you see it in drew barrymore's face which kind of rolls her eyes of that this is what they want and i think that that was the moment of her character realizing i'm i'm fighting a battle i can't win yeah these Mm. are even if i even if i change these people's minds are they worth it because this is what they want this is the easy entertainment they want the black or white and screw them and that's why she's she's obviously frustrated but i thought that was actually well done just just that one shot of her face that's how i took it i don't know if that's the director's intention,
0: but i totally think you're onto something and and more to this point um i and i guess more to my overall thesis that it's all about like how do we find escape from you know stifling uh, a stifling suburban very privileged existence is that so mr monotov who is the teacher that that initially gives Donnie the book about time travel, he says he has to just stop a conversation about wormholes due to fear that he'll lose his job. You know, they're, like, he's just like, look, uh, outside thought, not not okay, I'm going to lose my job. You know, there are very strict guidelines as to what we can talk about and what is right and what is wrong in this school. And so, yeah, I'm going to have to leave this conversation here. Similarly, Drew Barrymore's character gets fired and she's never – she's given no real explanation. She's just saying like it's just – she has inappropriate methods. That's it. You're fired. You I, know, I had no. assumed
2: it was it was due to the uh, the PTA moment where they're saying, in this book, the kids flood a house. The schools recently flooded. Come on, guys. And like that, that's such an easy scapegoat. Right. And I uh, – going way back, uh, I really liked that was uh, Mary McDowell scene where she – she's the one voice of reason in that room – which was like that was kind of the moment where I saw some Donnie in her or vice versa where she's the only one there who's challenging authority and saying, hold on, this isn't what PTA meetings are for. What are you doing that? And just a couple of people nod like, yeah, yeah, yeah." but it's that that mob mentality where she's like, we've all seen Bonanza, and like, yes. mic drop. You're like, what? the? You're wrong. <laughs> you, you fucking idiot.
0: Yeah, that's why. I, and that's another scene that makes me just love the character of Donnie's mom so much. Like, you can see that she's kind of more the intellectual. She does question the world around her, but at the same time, physically, you see that she's very made up. She's a very she's a very attractive older woman. She's kind of playing the part of this conservative uh, suburban mom because she thinks that okay, well, this is the life that I chose. This is the the prescription to creating a good life for our children, but she's constantly questioning me, and you could just see in her face all the time that she doesn't know if she's creating a good life for her children or not.
2: It also helps that she's always smiling. She has that you, per- permanent smirk that I loved in Battlestar Galactica. It's mm-hmm. just like, are you judging me? I yeah, can't tell. Yeah.
1: Sorry, do, awesome. do you think there's some... No, no, it's all good, man. Um, do you think there's something interesting with... Because I, I don't really know what to think about it, and I, I, I'm sure there's something... That we could really play with with um, Drew Barrymore's parting words about cellar door and mm-hmm. how they're two innocuous words that placed together are supposed to be these beautiful phonetic um Expressions of the English language, and I wonder—I I don't know what to think about that scene. But I'm sure our listeners can have it, all kinds of crazy theories. It comes so please into, write to us and tell us. But yeah, what do you what do you think, Adam? Sorry. Well, that
2: comes into play into the story, right? They go to Roberta Sparrow's house, and they—he says cellar door, and he goes to the cellar, and everything's a chain reaction. Right. There was something that—that's actually the one thing I really like about this movie. I feel like it was a—it was a Memento type movie without knowing it. Uh, just because of the, I think, the way the, the time travel allowed for a film to be edited this way. But what I really love about it, when everything gets reset, you actually look at how it really is the butterfly effect. This one thing sets off s- so many different um, chain reaction. And so the, Drew Barrymore's character saying, cellar door, Donnie sees the cellar door, he goes in there. And it sets everything into motion to where Gretchen will be killed, well Frank will be killed. So many, so much death comes from this these two words put together that were meant to be beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. It, that, and the determ- I think that was
2: just it's just poetic. I thought.
1: I was going to say I think maybe a, a deterministic reading of it could be where you know that conversation where he's talking about uh, with his teacher. He's like, oh, you know, if you can see the future from a god's eye view, then you don't really have the option of choice because it's already set out for you. Which is mm-hmm. a big theme that's that's cutting through this entire film, right? This idea of uh, determinism, like his path has already been set. So maybe it's this idea that that he's actually and this just popped into my head now that he's seeing this sort of end which is uh where he shoots Frank in the eye uh he obviously will have to go through this cellar door and then so then all of the other projections or all of the other experiences that are anterior to that like the experience with Drew Barrymore writing cellar door maybe that is actually him kind of projecting that backwards into that moment and and, and so it's almost like that the, this alternative timeline is proceeding or almost receding from this ultimate end back to the uh, the initial moment if that makes sense
3: and 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 just add one thing to what you were just saying about the chain the butterfly effect and stuff i uh that my favorite scene of the whole movie is when he's laughing there in his bed you know like he just made the choice to to kill himself basically to 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 save his girlfriend who's never going to know that he ever existed which is a beautiful and profound thing too yeah, that's
0: also where it kind of gets to like, all right, is this like a teen suicide angsty fantasy, you know? It's not suicide,
3: um, it's a sacrifice.
0: Okay, fine. But and he's choosing to kill himself to sacrifice himself for his girlfriend. That is, Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's, I it's a good movie, <clears throat> but I do kind of think that this— more to Austin's earlier pseudo intellectual point it's like you know it kind of bakes into these like oh for people who don't understand me one day i'll kill myself and you'll all be thinking about me in the second. Really yeah. that's yeah. how you
2: take it I just kind i kind of i just kind of took that as a uh, a moment of this is i think we always did this as teenagers was the what if you know oh what if things went this way or that way and that was sort of we'll give you a peek this is what your life is going to be like if you live it's probably better that you die. <laughs> and, I, and I thought that was kind of done beautifully. We, we talked a little bit about this with the the S. Darko podcast, but I love how they set you up as a viewer saying Frank saying this will be the end of the world, which you think is a red herring. But in fact, it, it's it's this beautiful sort of uh, just like poetic. It's the end of your world. You know, yes, and that, it's I, like, I agree yeah. fully. Yeah. yeah. I thought that's I what that. it was
1: it's... from the outset. Not having seen this movie before, the end of the world, I thought he was going to kill himself from the outset. So when he, when he actually ends up sacrificing himself, so to speak, that's what, again why I think the more interesting reading is that all of this is kind of a, a hallucinatory projection because then the point is, is that, well, I'm going to kill myself. Uh, the end of my world is coming. Therefore, I'm going to look at this. Alternative I hate that.
3: Timeline. I hate that. <laughs> For me, it's so much more fun if he if it all really happened, and then he's like, "Well, shit! If I if I don't get up from my bed, if I do get up from my bed right now, then my girlfriend's going to die, and I love her so much that goddamn it, I'm going to go out."
0: Well, well, I think that's how we are supposed to read. It, I know, but, yeah, and uh, you guys are like,
3: "Fuck that!" <laughs> you're such so no, a I, romantic,
0: just, Ryan. Right? I romantic. guess I just yeah, I, I'm not buying the romantic. thing. the other thing about that is that. Well, all the good things that Donnie had done is kind of the, quote, Donnie Darko, the superhero. in you know, like, first of all, the porn stash is not going to be found anymore. That guy is going to continue doing child well, pornography. It's a,
3: it's a semi-tragic ending, yeah, because obviously he's dead and then all these other good things aren't happening. But you know, his, Char- his Charita, love is alive. God damn it.
0: Yeah, Sharita Shen will never have that person who uh, sticks up for her, says just leave her alone, tells her that things will get better for her. That will never happen. So, yeah, I guess I'm, I don't know, I don't I don't really think this is a valid read, but I'm wondering if kind of more to Donnie's point that life is more complicated than just fear or love, if we're supposed to take the conclusion of the film as, well, there are good things and bad things about uh, Donnie's sacrifice. See, I, I
2: think, though, and this was, uh, I think something Austin was saying about the wave, where there's the deja vu moment, I think there's a ripple. And this is me re- reading way too much into him, oh, okay. Uh <laughs> And uh, for, me, we do here. for me, it's solidified by Frank touching his eye. I feel like Don, something happened. Um, this is me also believing in alternate realities and uh, sort of the, you know, these things that could potentially be, you know, the, the universe is ever expanding and infinite. And so that what, when Donnie died, there is still an echo and everyone still feels it mm. of, I think there is something there. So I, I'm guessing the um, Cunningham character, Patrick Swayze, he's he's up at night freaking out, probably because he had a nightmare of, him being caught, um, or he just can't live with himself. But then also Frank touching mm-hmm. his eye, thinking, like, why would he do that when that's the place where he gets shot? There's some echo. There's some memory there.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
2: Once again, me reading no, no, way no. too I much into that's... it, but I thought that was like a nice, a subtle thing that if Richard Kelly had his druthers, he would go, you know, Frank would then draw his death scene or something, and it'd be 30 minutes of extra, extra content that we don't need.
1: Yeah, and then the psychoanalytic reading of all of those bits, that montage at the end um, where everyone is kind of expressing their trauma would be that, see, this is when you're alone. You actually are honest about your anxiety and your fear of the future or your fear of the impending doom. But the structures that we build, the suburbs that we build, the PTA meetings that we build, the – what's Ryan, what's the name of the dance troupe? Sparkle Motion. Sparkle Motion. (laughs) Sparkle Motion and these concerts that we go to, all of that is kind of bullshit to cover over – these anxieties that we experience and I think that would be an interesting way to look at that final montage as well
0: so last thing I want to bring up add more to kind of the pseudo-intellectual point there are a couple of lines in this movie that I couldn't help but roll my eyes every time I hear them one is which one of which is when at the end when Donnie says deus ex machina our savior you know what I'm talking about yeah not a fan of that also the why are you wearing that stupid man suit I feel like is pure edge porn doesn't really mean <laughs> what? anything what does that mean a good line
3: what does it mean I, it's funny I'm gonna
1: agree with Ryan I like that line what yeah. does it
3: mean though it means, yeah. like, like, oh, you think this suit's weird? Well, your shit that you're wearing is just as weird if you really think about it, man. It's all relative, dude. <laughs> okay, I, the yeah. only—
1: It's uh, a crisis my, of identity. Exactly. It's, oh, man, give me Yeah, yeah. you think yeah. The only your thing perspective is, say- is the authority perspective, but even your position itself is, you know, susceptible to criticism or whatever, something like that. Here's the one thing I'll say that
0: I'll possibly defend this line. It's that Frank is looking into the future, and if you notice—if you remember— during halloween day donnie's suit is like a skeleton suit so it's like hey your bunny suit stupid yeah well your skeleton man suit is stupid that's the only way the line works for
2: me mm. it, it, it's a, it's know. not that <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it's, for 16 year olds like me to go wow. whoa yeah that was yeah, me yeah. that was me and then and then 33 year old me to go you're an idiot yeah <laughs>
0: All right, guys, before we move on, I want to tell you guys that the next movie we'll be covering on this podcast is the Natalie Portman movie that came out this year, Annihilation. So if you guys live outside the U.S., I believe you can watch it on Netflix. If not, it's out in theaters right now. So please watch the movie and join us for our discussion next week on Annihilation.
1: Cool. Um, I have I have two that kind of go well together if I can jump in on, on these. So one is from Tamar. And Tamar says, Hi guys, really enjoyed your last episode. I have two small notes. One, based on Brad Bird's filmography, I'm pretty convinced that The Incredibles 2 will continue the Anne Randian line that connects his last movies, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, and Tomorrowland. And then point two, regarding nostalgia, it's worth to notice that Edna, which is the director voice, says in the movie, I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. Keep up the great work, Tamar. And then, in relation to that, is from Henry, who basically he he, he was a relatively long email, but um, his second observation that he says is that uh, similarly, he wanted to talk about the Anne Randian. Ill- uh, illusions in the film and he sent a photo of Mr. Incredible who was lifting the huge spherical robot onto his shoulders and he says, and I couldn't help but notice that it was awfully evocative of a certain Greek titan, pretty central <laughs> to Rand's whole shtick and here's an image for reference and viewers don't have the image in front of them but you can freeze frame it at, at, at this point where it literally looks like Atlas Shrugged the cover of Atlas Shrugged <laughs> I, I, so, yeah, I yeah. think that's a really great point. Interesting and as far as sorry what was the first point? Oh, Edna. No. About um how the the Anne Randian elements are going to con- continue based on Brad Bird's filmography. I'd be I'd be very interested. I have not seen Tomorrowland. Uh, it's all about
3: industry, baby. Is it? Do you like that movie? I've never seen it. I heard it sucked. <laughs> have you seen it, Adam?
2: <laughs> I did. I know that it bummed me out cuz I'm a big Disney fan. Uh-huh. And I mean like a Disneyland fan uh-huh. and I I am yeah, maybe Brad Bird got in the way of his own movie cuz I always thought Tomorrowland was about the future and uh, progression. And if you ever look at like Walt Disney, whatever you think about him, he was a futurist. He had a he always had a vision of the future, sort of this visionary. And uh, that I think that movie tried to do its own, tried to do something different. And it I don't know what the message was, other than there's a really creepy scene where George Clooney's holding a little child robot, which seems to be like it's okay if it's a robot. That's just, just weird. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> Whoa. I uh, I recommend you don't waste your time with it, but it's. <laughs> Man, it's, it's worth just looking at it to see uh, yeah. what could have been. makes me so sad.
0: Yeah, that mm. Edna line is interesting. I totally forgot about that, that she says that I never really worry about the past. Mm. I think that adds some pretty interesting balance to our argument. But ultimately, once again, whenever a character says something or a theme is reintroduced during the point of the climax or when there's a resolution, which is when those two old dudes say, oh, there's nothing quite like the old school, I do think that that... Gives it a little bit more significance. And so I do think there's there still is a kind of affirmation of nostalgia in the movie. But the Edna thing definitely brings a bit of balance to that. And I think that's really interesting. Thank you for pointing that out.
3: And, and also at a added point to the to Greg's email is that um, Edna is also a human that does industrious things. She's exceptional at making super suits, you know, which we,
1: we that's right. We She's mention. really good at it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then here's one from Supernova. Supernova writes, it's not only okay to be outraged, but it's a good thing. According to Steven Pinker in his book Enlightenment Now, what the Enlightenment brought us was the need to seek out and solve problems. The curiosity of science may feel natural and endemic, but that's because none of us lived in the Dark Ages when technology was feared rather than sought after. So when we list things as quote unquote problematic, thank you by the way, Supernova, and express how much <laughs> we need to change things, we're expressing Enlightenment ideals of striving for utopia. It's not really a bad bad thing but then nostalgia sort of is the reason the society typically changes is because there was a problem we addressed and fixed it best we could and then we moved on when people look at the way things were and say it was better back then it's typically from ignorance of the problem that was solved and the reasons why we made the changes towards the progress love the podcast keep us thinking s nova
0: so you're the one who's reading the Pinker book. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. But uh, in turn, I, I mean, look, I totally understand where Supernova is coming from. Obviously, pointing out things that are problematic or offensive or, 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 or that, you know, serve to humiliate or uh, keep a certain group of people down are certainly things that we need to point out and reconsider and adjust but at the same time, I think that we can't just have a blanket statement that everything – that if you're offended, then you're automatically right. Like I could say that, oh, Supernova, you didn't you didn't address me as Sir Jared on this email. I'm offended. That doesn't make my point valid, and that doesn't mean that something needs to change in order for me to be fulfilled or that my desire be fulfilled. So I think it's, it's black and white, obviously, and some other people had emailed about this, about – it's ridiculous for me not to be outraged or offended by anything. And, and they're absolutely right. I mean, obviously there are things that offend me, but I would say that it's kind of a two-pronged thing. You should give less offense, but you should also take less offense. Um, at least that's just my opinion. It's very well, Buddhist also, of you.
2: Yeah. I was going to say it comes down to how do you channel your outrage or rage or lack thereof rage. Right. Do you mobilize a group of people or do you educate? That's always kind of an important thing of... Where do you stand? You have an audience. You have people listening. Yeah. Well,
0: I don't. My question then becomes: Where's the line between educate
1: and indoctrinate? Mm. Uh,
2: depends on how big their wallet is, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oftentimes, yeah. I mean, the only thing I'll say is with regards to the Pinker book, uh, Supernova. I'm glad you are doing reading and you're challenging yourself. But let me just suggest that um, you be critical with with Pinker's statements about the Enlightenment. He tends to conflate what this very broad and and multivalent um and multivocal Period that we call the Enlightenment actually was. And he kind of boils it down and condenses it and reduces it to this idea that it was all about reason. And to be very clear, the Enlightenment was not simply about the primacy or the victory of reason as he understands it. It was an exploration and a challenging of what we understand as rationality and reason. But, you know, one of the most central thinkers to the Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant, and then another one, David Hume, were very skeptical about what reason was. In fact, Immanuel Kant's seminal text is called Critique of Pure Reason. So he's actually critiquing this idea of pure reason. That Pinker then heralds and upholds as being that which is the bedrock of modern society. So uh, I'm glad you're reading and I'm glad you're thinking. But just, you know, um, be be wary of, of ideas and and do more reading and keep thinking and feel free to ask for resources. You can email anytime. I, I will definitely respond with uh, with text. And that goes for anybody. Or you can hit me up on Twitter um, anytime. Uh, I'm, I'm always available.
0: all right and before we head out i just want to thank our patrons on wisecrack plus we actually just put a bonus podcast where we dive deeper into jigsaw since we're releasing the philosophy of jigsaw this saturday so head over to wisecrack plus on patreon to get a bunch of cool exclusive content all right i want to thank today's guest adam kovic for joining us thank you so much adam
2: hey thanks for having me guys where can we find you on the internet you can find me over at funhouse it's on youtube russie's got a channel just you know Put in the old Google machine, you'll find us. I think I, you're smart enough.
0: Yeah, and I highly recommend you check out his uh, episode on the Funhouse YouTube channel on us doing the sequel to Donnie Darko. We did S Darko, and uh, I went on his podcast, and we had a really good time discussing. it. And even if you haven't seen the movie, I recommend you listen to it because it was uh, it was it was
2: quite a conversation. You told me it was therapeutic.
0: It was. But I mean, I I, I appreciate watching bad movies that have seemingly good foundations of thought to them and I would say that this is one of them on the
2: flip side I really had a good time talking with very smart people <laughs> <laughs> about a somewhat uh, what we could call an intellectual movie or having an intellectual discussion about a movie that thinks it's smart so either way I had a really good time uh, talking about a good movie that was nice cool
0: thank you so Thanks. yeah guys go cool over with. to the funhouse YouTube channel and subscribe
2: it is not half as smart as you guys I promise
0: that's okay you guys <laughs> you guys probably have a lot more fun than we do.
3: It's sad, happy. (laughs) So, yeah, if you want, follow me at at Ryan's Game Show on Twitter or go to Ryan's Shorts on Facebook or YouTube and follow my comedy shorts or Ryan's Game Show on YouTube, too. Those three things.
0: All right. Well, that does about does it for today. Thank you guys so much for listening, and next time we'll see you as we break down Annihilation. Thanks, everyone.
3: Peace out from Hollywood, California.
1: Laters.
0: Bye.